This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. Hello. In the news this week, the Hayabusa 2 probe has landed on an asteroid, the Bereshit lander has liftoff, and a farewell to opportunity. Firstly, an update on the Japanese Hayabusa 2 probe, which has completed an important stage of its mission. The spacecraft was designed to return a sample of material from an asteroid called 162173 Ryugu to Earth. Now, this was a continuation of the original Hayabusa mission. It studied an asteroid called 25143 Itokawa, and one of its goals was to descend the surface and collect grains of material from an asteroid, taking them back to Earth. This material was returned to Earth in 2010 and led to a large amount of interesting science, for example, details on the composition of the material, as well as learning about the effects of weathering in space. However, the original Hayabusa probe had a number of problems. One of the major things was the sample collecting mechanism developing faults, which meant that rather than collecting a lovely large amount of material, Only a small amount of material was collected because it happened to go into the sampling horn when the spacecraft landed and when it was on the surface of the asteroid. This then led on to the second mission, Hayabusa 2. It was designed to do a similar job in terms of collecting material from an asteroid. The craft was launched in December 2014 reached its target in 2018 and is expected to return to Earth at roughly the end of this year. It has four small rovers with a collection of cameras, thermometers, spectrometers and other interesting equipment, as well as the ability to again collect samples from the surface. For off-surface work it also has remote operating equipment. It has cameras for example in the near and thermal infrared. On Thursday the 21st of February the craft landed on the asteroid and on the 22nd a sample of material from the asteroid was collected. The way it works is this. On the craft is what's called a sampling horn, which material is collected inside. When that touches the surface, a small projectile, which is in this case 5 grams of tantalum, is fired into the surface of the asteroid so that the horn can collect the resulting ejector. There'll be two small tantalum projectiles fired into the surface, and then finally around March to April this year, a large copper projectile will be fired. This should result in some new and interesting science. As I said, the previous mission had some trouble with its sample collecting mechanism. So, when this mission works, and hopefully when the samples are returned to Earth, firstly the amount of samples should be far larger, and we'll hopefully also have a greater range of sizes with our samples. Secondly, the use of a projectile to break material off the asteroid means it's not only material from the surface being collected, but also slightly under the surface. This is especially apparent for the planned larger projectile. Next up, the Israeli-built Bereshit lander has liftoff. It's Israel's first lunar craft, designed both to take high-resolution images of the lunar surface and measure the lunar magnetic field. You see, the Earth's magnetic field is from its molten core. Next up, the Israeli-built Bereshit satellite has liftoff. The spacecraft is Israel's first lunar craft, and is designed to be able to take high-resolution images of the lunar surface 
as well as measure the lunar magnetic field. You see, the Earth's magnetic field is due to its molten in sight, which the Moon doesn't have. However, the Moon was likely at least partially molten in the distant past, which follows from our best ideas of how our solar system and how the objects within it were formed. When rocks solidify from this state, they retain some trace of the magnetic field that was around at the time. If Bereshit can measure these magnetic fields, and as well have a rough idea of the ages of the rocks they're being found in, we can improve our knowledge of the Moon's history. There's other interesting reasons why this lander is making the news. Firstly, how it was funded. The lander was made by an Israeli non-profit called Space IL, funded largely by philanthropists with only a small support from the Israel Space Agency. They partnered with the Israeli state-owned company Israel Aerospace Industries to build the lander. The launching was performed by one of SpaceX's Falcon 9 rockets, with NASA providing support for tracking the craft. In other words, this lander had a far larger level of private investment than previous moon missions. While the project still leaned on support of some government organisations, largely that of Israel, the idea large chunks of the development, the launch, were all performed privately. It's not quite holidays on the moon yet, but this is a very interesting thing for the future, to have a privately funded moon lander, when basically every previous lander has been done by the governments of incredibly powerful countries, the United States, Soviet Union in its time, and China. Another interesting thing that means this is making the news is the cost of the lander, which is estimated to be around $100 million. This is incredibly cheap for a lunar craft. What this does mean, though, is it's led to some interesting compromises in terms of its technology and how it works. A good example of this being the expected lifetime of the lander. The heat in the lunar day is intense. And one of the compromises is going to be that the lander has a lack of good thermal control, so it's very likely to overheat and die quite quickly. This lack of thermal control limiting its operation time. However, that is a compromise. As I said, the interesting thing about this lander is that with the compromises they've made, they can get the price down to $100 million, which is incredibly cheap for a lunar lander. Finally in the news, a farewell to Opportunity, one of NASA's Mars rovers. The rover first transmitted from Mars in 2004, and has far outlived its original goal of roughly 90 days of work. However, the rover fell silent after a planet-wide dust storm last June, and on Wednesday 13th of February, NASA declared the mission completed and ended their attempts to communicate. While this is no doubt a sad moment for astronomy, with the loss of a much-loved and very useful rover, it should be remembered just how incredible it is that Opportunity was around for so long. Over its life, Opportunity has studied the geology and the atmosphere of Mars. It's largely worked on characterising the rocks and soils of the Martian surface, with a focus on whether there is evidence that water was once on the surface of Mars. In this work, Opportunity was very successful, finding many geological features that support the idea of Mars having surface water in its history. 
for example, patterns in the rocks of Martian surface that resemble those formed in liquid rather than wind when they're seen on Earth, and also the presence of chemicals such as sulfates in Martian rock, which on Earth are generally created in areas with standing water. But now, as I said, NASA has ceased its attempts to communicate with opportunity. And that has been the news this month. Farewell. <laughs>